Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, a staple of Louisiana kitchens for nearly 40 years. Maker of batters, coatings, boils, tartar sauce, cocktail sauce, and more. Dig into homemade Louisiana flavor. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. It's been a long, long time since May the 5th, 2019, when the high temperature that beautiful sunny Sunday barely hit 72 degrees at the New Orleans fairgrounds, and Jazz Fest 2019 called it a wrap. Do you remember that day? I certainly do. After several false alarms, including one when we almost had an October Jazz Fest, the festival is back and ready to celebrate 50 years of festing. We're celebrating this happy return with some Jazz Fest favorites. If you've ever noticed my food jewelry, that knife around my neck and the oysters and shrimp in my ears, you're familiar with the craftsmanship of jewelry artist and sculptor Thomas Mann. We'll sit down with Thomas to hear just what a horrific struggle it's been to finally get to this year's fest, one that seemed uncertain to him in so many ways. And if you've ever admired the artisan woodworking of Greg Arsenault, a perennial favorite in Jazz Fest's Louisiana Marketplace, get ready for a crash course in what sets his work apart from the rest. Can't make it to Jazz Fest this weekend? Don't worry, we're bringing the best of the fest to you on this week's Louisiana Eats. From oil busts to oil spills, hurricanes to levee failures, the Crescent City has experienced more than its fair share of challenges over the last 50 years. But throughout all of them, the New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival has been there, serving both as an emblem of the city's unshakable spirit and as an engine for local business. Festival goers from far and wide come to hear great music, of course, but also to visit the booths of their favorite food vendors and craftspeople. In 2019, Jazz Fest attendance reached a post-Katrina peak at nearly a half a million. Then, in 2020, for the first time in half a century, Jazz Fest went silent, one of the earliest high-profile events forced to cancel due to the unfolding global pandemic. With the rollout of vaccines, hopes were high for a 2021 edition of the fest, first in the spring and then in the fall, but those plans were also scrapped. With the Jazz Fest gates open again this spring, many festival vendors are back serving guests for the first time in three years. It's a relief for those who rely on Jazz Fest income annually. Vendors like sculptor and jewelry designer Thomas Mann, who's been exhibiting his work there since 1977. 
when we spoke to Thomas a few months ago, he gave us a first-hand perspective on how important Jazz Fest is to his bottom line. So um, it's kind of been rough, huh, Tom? No Jazz Fest for us. Well, no Jazz Fest three times. Now, see, the thing for us, though, as uh, an artist and as a exhibitor at Jazz Fest and as a gallery owner here in New Orleans, it's not just Jazz Fest. It's French Quarter Fest. It's Jazz Fest. It's Essence Fest. It's three other festivals that take place over the course of three to four months that keep the city flush with tourists. And even though I'm not an exhibitor at any of those other events, right, only at Jazz Fest, I have customers who come for those other events and then come and find us. And that, that income delivery that we get from that period of the year floats us through the summer and into the fall until we can get ready for holiday, which is the last quarter of the year. So without those events, having not had those events last year or this year, we're skinny. Yeah, you, when I called you the other day, you described it as uh, standing on the edge of the economic cliff. There you that go. That's how you're feeling these yeah. days. Now, I think that we're going to survive it, but it's not any fun right now. So, Thomas, what year did you start doing Jazz Fest? 77, 1977. And I've done it every year since then. And my friend John Fleming, who's the leather mask maker, and I are the oldest Jazz Fest contemporary craft exhibitors. Wow. Oh, it's amazing. It's just amazing. Jazz Fest, I would guess then, has been instrumental in your career. Enormously instrumental. I remember the first year I did it in 1977, I could not believe how well I'd done because all through the 70s, I was doing art fairs in Florida, and I'd be happy to go to an art fair and make $2,000. That was like big at the time, you know, two, three, maybe five. I came to Jazz Fest for the first time, and I made $8,000. And that was a lot of money uh, in 1977. It was a ridiculous amount of money, and it just kept getting better every and every, every year, especially the year after Katrina. Did you live here in 1977? No, I, I eventually got a studio and home operation going here in 1982. Oh, so it took you all that time to figure out where home was. I was still, huh? I was still coming every, every spring to do Jazz Fest and stayed longer and longer and got to know people in the town and everything like that and fell in love with New Orleans and had a, actually an astrological biometric map made for me that showed the direct line right through New Orleans as an optimal place for me to live and work. Right. <laughs> <laughs> And so, uh, yeah, a Jazz Fest has been the, the, the driving engine of my whole career over the past 30 years. So you came here, and what keeps you here, Thomas? Well, uh, now it's basically kind of a lifestyle choice. And then, of course, I've got, uh, you know, I cook pretty seriously, and so if you want to be someplace where, like, there's a food scene, this is where the food scene is. Before, there was a food scene everywhere else. So I was, I've, you know, I've been to every restaurant in town, and I, I used to publish a little, you know, review of all the restaurants and a, my top 10 fine dining, my top 10 for lunch, my, you know, what so, and, and we'd publish that to our customers. If they came to town, we'd give them one of these kind of a thing. So the food aspect of my presence here has always been a big factor as well. 
Well, it's the food aspect that somehow even translates into your jewelry, which <laughs> is the reason that you and I are such good friends. That's correct. And you are responsible for launching a whole new avenue of uh, my opportunity to make food jewelry here. So, Well, uh, it's just because I saw that knife, that knife that you made for Nathaniel Zimmett's benefit. Right. And I just had to have it. But then there were these amazing oyster earrings mm-hmm. that you made. It was during the BP oil spill. Yeah. You made these really to help benefit. It was a bu- the fundraiser for the uh, organizations that were cleaning ducks and birds and that kind of stuff. And it, it still is the case today. We make them. And the, the unique thing about the oyster earrings is that they have an oil slick inside of them with a pearl in it, right? <laughs> and yet that was such a brilliant design element because yeah. it makes that pearl stand out, and they're so beautiful. Well, uh, New Orleans and uh, the Cajun uh, uh, diaspora here uh, have been a big inspiration design-wise for a lot of the work that I've produced over the years. Yeah, I, You've got <clears throat> carrots. You've yeah, got— Yeah, carrots— um, Radishes, bananas. Uh, I've done I've I've done a lot of one of a kind pieces that are food oriented, and a lot of production work that's food oriented as well. Well, I mentioned the BP oil spill, and you have really, again and again, done the right thing. Whether it was to help benefit Nathaniel mm-hmm. Zimmet, and from there to the oyster earrings. Why has it always been so important to you to give back to this community? Well, I'm you know I'm. One of those uh, "quote unquote" progressives, <laughs> you know, and I've been doing this my entire career. This is like, you know, if you live in a in a community and to be part of the community, you benefit the community in every way that you can. So I listen. We donate all the time, and this isn't like a call to for everybody out there to call us for donations, but we donate uh, to a lot of different causes, and I've done that throughout my career. Well saying this isn't the time it isn't the time to, i don't know who you'd ask for donations these days because yeah, everybody's everybody's stressed. hurting and yeah. you know uh, for people to understand the the economic impact that is being had on your business you have staff you have people oh. who work for you how are you managing? Well, 1995, I had 26 employees between the retail, wholesale, manufacturing, and now we're down to just five of us. Oh, my. And that is because of a huge changing set of circumstances in the 21st century that we have been adapting to as we go along. Now, the thing that makes the difference for us is that I put up the first e-commerce website in what I call craft world, the world that I live in, craft world, in 1995. Wow. It never was very productive until the turn of the century. Now it is actually responsible for delivering 80% of our income, of whatever income we're making at the moment, is coming in to us online. So how can people find you, Tom? Uh, Thomasman.com. Or can they come and see you? 500 Napoleon Avenue. 
Sometimes I'm there working and there's a note on the door with my cell number and you call me and I come and I let you into the gallery and you get the personal shopping opportunity. Well, you just can't ask for more personal service than having (laughs) Thomas Mann himself with you in his fabulous jewelry gallery. I'm going to come visit soon. Okay. Thank you so very much. Thank you, Tom. Cheers. Sculptor, jewelry designer, and longtime Jazz Fest vendor Thomas Mann. You'll find Thomas in his contemporary crafts booth during the first weekend of the festival. But you can always find him at his workshop and gallery, The Rose Tattoo, located across the street from Tipitina's on the corner of Napoleon and Chapitulis. Coming up next, we meet Greg Arsenault, whose traditional Acadian and Creole furniture has been a fixture at Jazz Fest's Louisiana Marketplace for decades. Louisiana Eats returns after the break. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Camellia Brand, Beans Done Right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923. Now inviting you to become a member of the Camellia Brand crew with their new box subscription program. Shipped quarterly to your door with up to 10 surprise ingredients inside, it's like having a Mardi Gras parade through your kitchen all year long. To learn how to become a member of the Camellia Brand crew, visit CamelliaBrand.com. Support also comes from Rouse's Markets, synonymous with seafood straight from Louisiana's waterways. Rouse's Markets. Tastes like home. And from Crystal Hot Sauce, made with three simple ingredients, aged red cayenne peppers, distilled white vinegar, and salt. Nothing artificial. Crystal Hot Sauce, how New Orleans does flavor. I'm Greg Arsenault. I'm a Louisiana cabinet maker, building a style of furniture based on Louisiana Creole and Acadian antiques. Greg Arsenault's roots in southern Louisiana are deeper than a century-old cypress. His Arsenault ancestors settled in the area in the early 1700s. That long history in Louisiana sparked Greg's passion for our state's traditions, the food, the music, the culture, and for Greg, the furniture. Today, you can find his traditional Louisiana pieces in museums, restaurants, and private homes. But I was first introduced to his beautiful work at the New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival. 
Greg has been a Jazz Fest vendor for decades, and this year marks his 34th year at the event. Louisiana Eats joined him at his showroom, Greg Arsenault Cabinet Makers in Covington. Greg, this interview is a long time coming, and what I'd like to begin with is how did you receive the calling of furniture maker? Because that's a very rare thing, kind of for the late 20th century, but definitely for the 21st century. So what are you doing here, Greg? Uh, it's pretty archaic. I uh, this I told my dad when I graduated from high school that I really wanted to become a furniture maker. And uh, he helped me acquire tools and... I started my career uh, basically by teaching myself to use the tools. Uh, I worked at jobs doing carpentry work so I could build some skill with saws and measuring. And um, I went to college at LSU and I studied fine arts. Sculpture was my major. But I wanted to connect to people's daily lives in a way that uh, had purpose as well as beauty and I found that furniture was the way to do that and then I discovered how unique Louisiana style is in not only music but uh, language and also furniture most people don't realize Louisiana has its own style of furniture well it's more complicated than that because actually Louisiana has two different historical furniture styles, don't they? Well, people forget that Spain ruled Louisiana as long as France did. And actually, it's three lines that came together. The American designs were influential. The French lines were very influential. And the Spanish lines were also very much a part of early Louisiana I think it's fascinating, Greg, that um, just as there are marked differences in culinary tastes of Acadian and Creole, um, that carries through for furniture as well, doesn't it? Absolutely. The Creole taste ran to the what was popular in the court of France at the time. So you see the cabriole leg, you see scalloped aprons, you see a little bit more detail even though uh, the style in Louisiana was much more um, restrained than you would have seen in continental France. Of course, that was being tempered by the frontier life that the people were living here. When the Acadians arrived, being peasant farmers, they preferred a much simpler style. So you see the tapered leg, clean, straight aprons, Definitely much more utilitarian. Mm -hmm. And was everyone using the same indigenous woods, or were there different woods preferred by the Creoles versus the Acadians? Well, the Acadians tended to be deal with simpler materials, more domestic materials. Uh, their high-style pieces were built out of cherry, sometimes walnut, mostly cypress, though which was a very abundant material, easy to work, um, highly available. The Creoles tended to have richer tastes, and 
Louisiana has always had a connection with the Caribbean. In particular, Cuba. That's where the original mahogany came from. So we've always had access to wood like mahogany or Spanish cedar, and uh, that's uh, our Caribbean connection, but it also is indicative of more of a Creole piece. Cypress is a particularly forgiving material in this climate, isn't it? Cypress couldn't have been designed better for this climate. It, it actually grows in the swamp and the water. It develops resin in it that resists rot and uh, decay. So uh, it couldn't be more designed better to live in this area and, and be functional in this area. Greg, I'd like to go back to the time when you were self-taught, when you were training. I'm curious if you have any stories that come to mind that you might want to share with us. Well, I was very inspired initially by visiting antique stores and antique collectors and, and seeing uh, their collections and visiting museums. And truly, I, I found it puzzling because I didn't see necessarily the furniture that was used in Louisiana very much. And I wondered where it came from or where it went. And in uh, talking to some of the collectors, uh, I discovered that because of different traditions in Louisiana, plus the weather conditions here, the fact that uh, we have hurricanes and floods, that uh, those were all contributing factors to what uh, caused there to be so little of the furniture available and passed down through generations. Uh, living in Lafayette for most of the 70s, uh, I heard tales of uh, a grandmother passing away and the family collecting all of her belongings and piling them up and burning them. Why? Well, they didn't want the grigri. They didn't want that grandmother's ghost coming to visit them. So that was a tradition that was uh, throughout Louisiana, and that's another contributing factor what to, as to why there's so few early Louisiana pieces. It dawns on me that from your artist and furniture maker's point of view, I'm guessing that if you see an old piece of furniture, it's going to speak volumes to you about the person who built it. Absolutely. And you can see their attention to detail in how well the joints fit together and uh, how smooth the surface is, even in an antique uh, you know, we these days we have machine tools that can do a lot of the work for us. But uh, in days gone by, they uh, did everything by hand, and it was a much more laborious process and harder to, to make those surfaces polished like they ended up being. When I first started, I assumed that I would be an anonymous furniture maker like so many of the people from the past. Um, and I, I was totally all right with that. Um, but I, as my career has progressed, um, I've gained a little bit more notoriety, apparently. 
Well, between the incredible museum recreations and just the unbelievable things that you have accomplished over your career, what do you hope your legacy to be? Well, I hope my legacy is an inspiration to someone to continue the work and to continue building pieces with the integrity that that, uh, antiques have. you know, unfortunately, in this day and age, everything's mass-produced out of particle board and veneer, and there's no longevity in that. There's planned obsolescence for those pieces, and, uh, you know, that's in hopes of, in five years, you'll throw that out and buy new stuff. Um, you know, I, I build stuff for you to pass down to your grandchildren and their grandchildren, um, so, uh, I have to be very careful as to the style that I pick and the details. I want things to be, have classic beauty and classic composition. So, uh, I pay attention to those details. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of the younger generation doesn't see the value. And I'm going to say yet. Yet. Because as they age, they will come to appreciate things a little in a different light. Things that don't need to be replaced so readily, perhaps. Huh? Correct. <laughs> you know, uh, we live in a disposable age, and uh, what's trendy today may not be trendy in a year or five years. I've chosen to build classic-style furniture that is um, made to endure generations. Well, Greg, this has been such a treat to have this opportunity to well, sit and I'm visit thrilled. with you. Well, I'm thrilled. Thank you, Poppy, for, for uh, thinking of me. And, you know, a lot of times I, I feel like a redheaded stepchild because people really don't understand what I do or what I can do for them. And uh, this has been a great opportunity. Thank you very much. That was Greg Arsenault of Greg Arsenault Cabinet Makers in Covington, Louisiana. He can be found in the Louisiana Marketplace the first weekend of the New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival and at gregarsenault.com. Perhaps best of all is to do like we did and personally visit Greg's workshop in Covington on the North Shore in St. Tammany Parish. Every week after the news bulletin, the anticipation gradually builds until we hear that telltale theme song. Which, of course, was composed and recorded for us by none other than Johnny Sketchin' the Dirty Notes. The New Orleans funk rock band has become a regular favorite at Jazz Fest. The boys sat down with us to share some of their Jazz Fest memories and to talk about the meals they enjoy off and on the stage. Hi, this is Mark Parody, a.k.a. Johnny Sketch. 
I play cello, guitar, and I sing for Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Hello, my name is Andre Boren, and uh, sometimes they call me Dirty Johnny, and I play drums and sing with Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Your mother will be so proud. My name is David Pomerlo, and I sing and play the bass in Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. My name is Omar Ramirez. I am also known as Johnny Rico, and I play the trumpet in Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Welcome back to Louisiana Eats, boys. I'm always thrilled to see you guys. Hey, and, Poppy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, just just for the record, we have to give the big shout-out to Cousin Dave over there, Pomerlo, who, because of him getting a special idea every week when people listen to Louisiana Eats, what are they listening to, guys? The theme music from Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes for my lovely cousin, Poppy Tooker. Do you, do you know what the name of that song is? It's called Let's Eat. <laughs> well, let's eat. But before we eat, let's talk. I really wanted to pick your brains about your Jazz Fest experiences, because you all have been consistently appearing at the festival for over a decade now, and things certainly changed over that period of time. I remember, I think the first time I saw you all at the festival, you were on the Gentilly stage. That's right. Uh, well, the first year we did play the Jazz Fest, we were on the Acura stage. The first? Yeah, that was in 2005. Uh, we were supposed to play in 2004, and it was rained out. And I think maybe as a kind of a act of pity, they gave us a really excellent set the next year, which was ended up being our debut performance. So we were on the Acura stage at 3.30 in the afternoon, which is also Dave Matthews was headlining that night on the same stage. Uh, I think probably when we played, there was at least 30,000 people in the field, maybe more. It was It was basically as full as it was going to get because so many people came early to hear Dave Matthews. Now, that's kind of a double-edged sword. Yeah, we got to play for an ocean of people, but most of that ocean of people were just waiting for Dave Matthews. I bet you got so, some new fans out no, of that we, crowd. we definitely did, and I'll play for an ocean of anybody, no matter what the circumstances. So it was, it was pretty spectacular. Well, take us along with you on a day at the festival. How does it go? Do you get good parking? Well, yeah, you you, yeah. you either park in the Gentilly lot or the Acura stage lot, and they really have it all organized beautifully. So you're just whisked away they, they to shuttle each, you to wherever you need, thing to be. you need to do. And some years we'll do CD signings, and you know you 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 finish playing and you take a breath, and they say, "Okay, come on, we got to go to the CD signing," and they whisk you away to that, and um, it's just really well run. Yeah. Um, and they take care of the artists beautifully, you know? They do a really smart thing, too, which the first few years I didn't understand because I said, why can't we, we have a van and trailer, why can't we just pull it up behind the stage and load it out? I mean, we were getting out of one van, putting all of our gear into another van. They were driving us back there. And now that I'm a little older, I realize it's probably a smart thing to not have a bunch of musicians driving amongst, you know, 100,000 pedestrians on a dirt track who don't really know where they're going. Uh, it seems like a slightly more responsible situation, and and it works. And like Dave said, it works really well. They've they've got it down to clockwork. So, how do they feed you at the festival? What's craft service like? Well, 
standard fare of backstage food is, you know, you get your ice chest full of sodas and beers, and then you get your deli tray, which is like every backstage in America and elsewhere, I'm sure. Little triangle sandwiches with the crust cut off. Um, and hey, don't get me wrong. <laughs> I think we're all pretty big fans of those. I can eat a lot of those. <laughs> those sandwiches are pretty They're good. Party sandwiches. They're great. Those aren't deli. Well, if whatever you're you want to call them. Orleans, party party sandwiches. sandwiches. Okay, party sandwiches, darling. But in general, I don't think the um, the bands accept the jazz fest gig for the backstage catering. <laughs> no, <laughs> we we did have a deal going with Tips for a while where we said we said, hey, Tipitinas. We will grace you with our presence, but we require Popeye's chicken. <laughs> and they honored that for a while, but I think they've given up on the chicken. We, we didn't get it the last time. Oh. It's probably better. It's not the best pregame food. Oh, it's, no, it's the after game. It's an after, yeah. Right. The By after then, everybody's game. eating it. Everybody's eating it, and all that's left is the, are the bones. We have had some fun with Popeye's fried chicken before. Remember the time that um, you all were throwing fried Popeye's hand pies from the stage at around... Two o'clock in the morning, they were strawberry. <laughs> I will never forget that. Mm. Winging those pies from the stage at Tipitina's, that was wild. It was People awesome. couldn't believe it. <laughs> in this city, we're used to having things thrown to us from the Mardi Gras tradition. <clears throat> but most of that stuff about a week later just kind of looks like garbage, you know? Not garbage per se, but it doesn't serve any purpose. It goes into a bag and you forget about it for 360 days. A Popeye's hand pie has immediate appreciable value, <laughs> especially at 2 a.m. when you've been drinking at a show. That was like throwing money into the crowd. People, were, People's faces lit up. And I think at the Maple Leaf one time we, we had... Uh, a flash mob. A, whole, a fried chicken, a chicken flash chicken mob. Chicken flash mob. And we, <laughs> and we put a bunch of boxes out on the bar, and then we passed boxes over the crowd like they were crowd surfing through, and everybody took a wing. Or, it, was, it was so cool. And there's nothing better than watching a crowd that's... Dancing and eating chicken at the same time. It was a very New Orleans moment for me. <laughs> Our friends, the Louisiana Eats house band, Johnny, Sketch, and the Dirty Notes. If you're a Louisiana Eats listener, I'll bet you're as excited over the food at Jazz Fest as the music. Wouldn't you love to have a Jazz Fest cookbook? In 1984, New Orleans famed cooking teacher Lee Barnes, along with longtime Fest vendor Lorraine Landry, set out to create the first edition of the New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival cookbook. What a treasure this out-of-print 30-plus-year-old book is. It's laid out by tent numbers, and believe it or not, in 1984, there were only five food tents at Jazz Fest. Out of all the vendors listed in the book, only Vaucresson Sausage, A.J. Snowballs, Cajun Kettle Foods, now called Big River, and the Roman Taffy Candyman still appear at the festival today. But what unforgettable food superstars were festival vendors at one time. The great chef Austin Leslie served shrimp creole and stuffed peppers at the Jazz Fest. 
His recipes for both of those classic dishes made it into the book. For a copy of Austin Leslie's recipes, just visit our website at poppytooker.com, where you'll also find a treasure trove of other great things to cook. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats. Of all the Jazz Fest vendors, who is the only one you'll still find there after 50 years? Stay tuned, and we'll answer that question when we come right back. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, breadings, boils, new air fry mixes, and more classic Louisiana dishes available everywhere. Dig into homemade Louisiana flavor from the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission. Located 40 minutes north of New Orleans French Quarter along the shores of Lake Pontchartrain. The delicious Tammany taste culinary scene and an abundance of soft adventure attractions are among the many reasons to love the North Shore's charming communities. Find details on upcoming events, itinerary suggestions, and more at louisiananorthshore.com. Here's this week's culinary quiz question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. Of all the Jazz Fest vendors, who is the only one you'll still find there after 50 years? That would be our dear friend, Vance Vaucresson. When the very first Jazz Fest was held at Congo Square in 1970, organizers asked Sonny Vaucresson, Vance's dad, to make some poor boys to sell at the fest. Sonny Vaucresson was a third-generation butcher whose entrepreneurial spirit led him to open Vaucresson's Creole Cafe at 624 Bourbon Street, where he was the first person of color to own a French Quarter business since Reconstruction. Those foil-wrapped sausage poor boys were a hit, and Vance was there to witness his dad's success as a baby carried in his mother's arms. You'll find Vance today in his Jazz Fest booth. But the big news is that soon after, you'll also be able to find Vance back in his 7th Ward home at the new Vaucresson's Creole Cafe. Vance's grandfather opened the family's original meat market on the corner of North Johnson and St. Bernard Avenue, where the business was based until Hurricane Katrina. After years and countless obstacles, the Vaux croissants are back, 
now located nearby the original business at 1800 St. Bernard Avenue. Congratulations, Vance. Your family has taught us all so much about what makes for some real Louisiana Eats. Artist palette of Terence Osborne is as vividly delectable and diverse as Louisiana itself. You may have spotted his artwork at previous jazz and heritage festivals, where he operates a mini gallery and a tent over at Congo Square, or on display in restaurants, bars, and homes throughout the state and the world. If not, you've certainly seen his official, highly sought-after Jazz Fest posters. After the success of the Congo Square posters created in 2007 and 10 for the fest, Terrence was tapped to do the festival poster in 2012, a wildly successful rendering of Trombone Shorty. Terrence memorialized the Preservation Hall Jazz Band in 2014, Fats Domino in 2018, and this year, fest collectors take note, he's back again. This year's poster depicts a lively image of Grammy Award-winning John Batiste at the piano. In the early days of our show, Louisiana Eats joined Terrence in his West Bank studio to talk about his work. We began by speaking about his earliest festival memories. Well, I was in college when I started doing the festival. I would go and see Richard Thomas, who's a local artist here, and I loved the way he sold his artwork and the way he was in the media, and I wanted that. So he's Started, your inspiration. Yeah. yeah, he's one of the uh, vets over there. He, you know, he's 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 been at it thirty years plus. And what's the experience mm. of the festival like for you? Well, it's almost like a big reunion every year. Some of the same faces come around, and then some new faces. But it's just a big party. Everybody's feeling good and sharing. Everybody who goes to the festival knows that the food at the festival itself is an art. And since you are a festival artist, you practically live there during the seven days the festival's going on. Oh, yeah. So what's the first thing you eat? The first thing I eat is the mango freeze. (laughs) You love (laughs) that one. Gotta have a mango freeze. I mean, we, we probably have, between my wife and I, we have about... 10 each before the <laughs> festival's over. <laughs> and what else? What else uh, sustains you during festival? The crawfish bread is amazing. There's somebody who sells it who is just the best. I mean, you, you know it when you have it. Plantains. Oh, yeah. Those are wonderful. And the jamma jamma. You oh, can't eat course. the plantains without the jamma jamma. Of course, of course. <laughs> <laughs> but tell me, what inspires your art? Well, color, definitely. Um, There's really two different inspirations for me. One, it has to do with the content, and that's that's more of something that I was born into. You know, before I I realized what New Orleans was, I was already expressing the culture. And I think that's true for a lot of locals here who are talented and project that. 
you're born into it and then eventually you get around to expressing it and then realizing it and then appreciating it because you've been in it the whole time. I think the other thing is the color. We're vibrant and energetic and eccentric people and we love our culture and the color is a great expression of it. You know, we, we're not afraid to paint our houses purple and green or <laughs> pink and brown. It's easy to find it anywhere in the city. So I don't know. It's, it just feels kind of natural to use any color. So Terrence, as steeped in New Orleans culture as you were growing up, did you have to leave New Orleans to get perspective on that? Well, I had a little bit of understanding of the culture pre-Katrina, but leaving the city gave me an entirely different perspective. Uh, we moved to Georgia. So we stayed in Georgia for almost three years, I believe. Three years? Almost, yeah. And yeah, that was a long time, and I, I almost got settled. Because in Georgia, we stayed in an area where the trees changed you know, you, mm-hmm. you don't see that in the city. Mm-hmm. And so when I came back to the city, I realized what I missed. And the the people, you know, how every everybody talks to you in New Orleans. You know, you you I think it, we have a sense that everybody's family, like, you know, somebody through somebody else, you know, um, and so that I think that's why we talk to each other so freely here. And you just, you don't get that in most other places. Um, what drew you back? Well, that's what, that's what drew me back. <laughs> uh, I missed that. You know, I, I realized that I'd, I'd hardened up. And when I came back, I was reminded of how I am supposed to be. So that was like the deciding factor. We had to, we had to come back. Now, we met each other at a food event, and one of the thoughts that you shared with me is that in your paint colors, you see food sometimes and yeah. correlations to that. Would you yeah. talk to me about that? Sure. A culinary artist, when they make their meal, mix all of these different foods or ingredients and then they play around with temperatures and stuff to get the food to do what they want to do. I do the same thing with my artwork. When I'm mixing my paint, I know where I want to go with my color. And uh, eventually I create something that is visually appealing. And it has the same visual appeal that food has. It almost looks edible when I'm done. So how do you want people to view your art? What do you want your art to mean to people? Well, I want people to look at my art and be overwhelmed. I like to throw colors together that feel good to me. So when I'm done with my piece, I want my spectator to look at it without me even being there and feel what I felt while I was working on it. To me, that exchange is priceless. Well, I am a big fan, and it was really thrilling to have this opportunity to find the artist in his studio at home. Mm. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Poppy. I appreciate it. Terrence Osborne, creator of the 2014, 2018, 
and now 2022 Jazz and Heritage Festival poster. To get your own copy of this year's poster, visit artfornow.com or drop by Terrence's Magazine Street Gallery in New Orleans. it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Catch up on previous editions of Louisiana Eats on poppytooker.com, where we have 10 years of Louisiana Eats editions available for pod and webcasting, along with recipes and cooking class videos, too. If you like our show, please rate it on your preferred podcast platform. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Louisiana Fish Fry, Camellia Brand Beans, Crystal Hot Sauce, Rouse's Markets, the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, and from D'Agostino Pasta. Handcrafted in Louisiana from semolina wheat and air-dried over rods in wooden cellars, D'Agostino Pasta is made just as it's been done in Sicily four centuries. Visit D'AgostinoPasta.com to learn more. Support for Louisiana Eats also comes from Gulf Coast Blenders. For more than 30 years, Gulf Coast Blenders has produced custom spice and dry blends for restaurant concepts across the country. Gulf Coast Blenders, dry ingredient blends with New Orleans roots. To learn more, visit gulfcoastblenders.com. Original theme music composed by David Pomerlo and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner, producer and special projects manager Reggie Morris, and producer Blake Longlinay. And to our business manager and social media maven, Maddie Mulladew. Catch up with us anytime on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting.